Welcome to episode seven of Didn't Know, a podcast about things you never knew you wanted to know. I'm Alessio Danini, joined by my friend and co-host Brad Ball. Brad, um, we're actually on schedule, somewhat. I know as far as our uh, our days go for the week, we're a little off schedule, but this should come out on schedule, so that's feeling pretty good. How you doing? That's what we're talking about. Feeling pretty good. You know, it's been a good week. Uh, we're almost at Friday. I'm almost at the end of my semester, and the weather's been getting hotter, so uh, I'm pretty happy. How about you, Alessio? Yeah, dude, it's been like uh, 20 degrees Celsius here, so I've been pretty happy about that. Although, you know, um, it's it's kind of it's kind of weird to see how warm it is in March right now, but you know, I can't really complain. I'm I'm pretty happy overall. I swear there was like three feet of snow just outside my front door, like a couple weeks ago. So yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> with you. It just, it feels like we're supposed to get another storm still. But uh no, let's not talk about that. Instead, uh what do we have to talk about today? Um a little bit of a whole brain emulation which which is kind of synonymous with um the the idea of mind uploading. They basically mean the same thing, but um it it has some pretty interesting implications and there's also some interesting fiction and interesting thought behind it uh when it comes to ethics and um you know whether or not we'll even be able to accomplish anything like uh w- what people think when they think of whole brain emulation. So to start I guess um I think fiction would be kind of a good springboard to to jump off of so we can get an idea of what we're looking at here. And I know that you, um, you're you a big fan of uh, whole brain emulation in fiction, especially with uh, Black Mirror, which tends to, to kind of come back to the idea pretty often. So um, what do you got for me? Yeah, so you hit the nail on the head with Black Mirror. I mean, I'm obsessed, but um, even astray away from that, you know, there's mind uploading or whole brain emulation examples in a lot of fiction across uh, TV series, films, and uh, as well as books and video games too. Um, but uh, the examples that I wrote down for myself, and these are ones that I've seen or at least partially have seen before, um, are Altered Carbon. Uh, that's the one uh, TV series where people are able to upload their consciousness to other skins, changing what they look like just you know, whenever they'd like. Um, and then there's Chappie as well, which focuses on um, a man who actually gets his consciousness uploaded to a robot. Just a simple click on a keyboard and all of a sudden you're now in a metal body. No big deal. Um, and of course, Black at Mirror series, which has a couple of episodes that talk about it. Um, a couple are San Junipero, which talks about life after death, just being uploaded to a server. Um, and there's Hang the DJ, where uh, you can test drive your relationship by your consciousness being uploaded a hundred different times. You sort of, you know, meet your uh, significant other all over again a hundred different times and you hope for it to go the right way. Uh, and then there's also White Christmas, which is practically you being a slave to yourself in your own house where you're technically act- acting as an Amazon Alexa or a Google Home for yourself. Um, so those are some really great examples in fiction. And if you haven't seen this yet and you are interested in, you know, seeing more about what whole brain emulation could unhold, um, I would definitely suggest to go check out some of those examples. But what, uh, what I want to know is, is like how, how accurate or like based on the research you've done, which, uh, which of those examples seems closest to what something 
might actually be like when it comes to whole brain emulation. Cause I know some of them are a bit more, uh, out of this world than others. So I'm, I'm just curious to know, like, what do you think the, the most potentially accurate one is not that you're a, a neuroscientist or, or anything, but you know, just as an idea. Well, well I would, I wouldn't put myself too far away from it. <laughs> pretty close. I've read a couple, ah, close, a couple books. You know, I, I read a case study once, you know, it's fine. <laughs> so, uh, honestly, my best uh, guess, I would kind of say White Christmas. Um, and once again, that's you going to an office and signing up for your brain to be scanned and your consciousness to be completely duplicated onto, um, I guess, well, really what they make is a tiny, tiny version of yourself that gets put inside this egg. Uh, and this egg sits inside your home, and that is your um, home servant. And so the idea is that you know what you want, you know when you get up, uh, you know um, how you like you know, your toast in the morning. And so um, instead of having to do everything yourself, um, you have a tiny you that is actually basically getting your entire day ready for you. Um, so I guess the reason that I think that would be more realistic than anything else is because I find that being the practical use that people would get out of this, at least in the very beginning, you know, nothing too advanced or simple, like a hundred different versions of you to test drive your marriage um, or, you know, uh, life existing forever on some massive computer servers. That seems like a bit of a stretch. But if we just focus on the one individual being copied into, um, you know, like a tiny object or being your servant practically, uh, that's that's the one that stuck with me, maybe maybe because I probably want one of those myself. I don't know if I'd want one of those. That seems so, like almost slavery. I don't know. And like, if you're gonna enslave someone, do you really want to enslave yourself? Uh, seems <laughs> the most morally appropriate. No, yeah, and 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 it does. But like, you know, do you really want to enslave anyone ever? And like, I mean, I guess it depends whether or not this this um emulated brain you know has its emotion box checked where it can actually feel emotion and stuff but like you know i mean i feel like if i was stuck in a little robot being served to force like an analog version of myself or being forced to serve an an analog version of myself it might be a little a little weird an acoustic version of myself You should actually take a look at the episode. It's it's I should, uh, I pretty dark how they force like your tiny version of yourself to uh, comply. So it, you're definitely right. Um, even you don't want to be a servant to yourself. Yeah, screw that, man. Uh, anyways, so so an, an idea of what whole brain emulation is, um, I think would obviously be really helpful. So what do you got for that? Yeah, I want to break it down a bit more so we're not just living in fantasy land here. So whole brain emulation, what is it? So uh, to break it down simply, because there's a lot of different ways to uh, explain it out there, um, just picture a complete digital replica of your brain. And uh, this brain holds your consciousness as well, and it's stored on a hard drive. You know, not different than something that you would hold music or DVD uh, videos on, but uh, probably have to be quite a bit larger. So you could plug this hard drive in and upload or download it just like a piece of software. Um, And this replica would have the same memories, plans, aspirations and goals that you have. It has absolutely everything down to a crisp. 
So if you can picture that, then uh, this is sort of the idea that people are trying to achieve. This is sort of their, um, I guess, finish line, you could say. So in order to develop ideas about the possibility of whole brain emulation, the Future of Humanity Institute hosted a workshop in May 2007, and they invited experts from areas such as computational neuroscience, brain scanning technology, computing, nanotechnology, and neurobiology, just every industry that would be involved and uh, in the process of whole brain emulation. So these people presented their findings and discussed all of the possibilities, problems, and milestones that would have to be reached before whole brain emulation would become feasible. Um, and then afterwards, in 2008, uh, it was Nick Bostrom and Anders Sandberg who published the first roadmap to brain emulation, which combined suggestions made by participants before, during, and after this workshop. So it's helpful that uh, these people actually went ahead and published something because this is the, um, I guess, most critical debate and discussion that we've had on whole brain emulation, and they actually went ahead and, uh, you know, established a roadmap for that. So this is really what um, a lot of our information is coming from. And uh, this is what we're going off of when we're talking about the feasibility of whole brain emulation. I'm kind of surprised by how early 2008 or well, even before people... 2007, right? That that's, um that's, that's really kind of shocking considering how how advanced the technology is i mean i know you could say well they started ai in like you know the 1900s or they started thinking about it at least uh but for something you know such a step above everything else that that's it's kind of shocking that 2000 as early as 2008 um you know people were already talking about you know people already had you know a good idea that's still looked at today as to what it would take and how we would do it broadly yeah, well, I mean, you know, scientists, them and uh, their ambitions are pretty high. How do you think we got to outer space here? Oh, true enough, dude. True enough. So um, to talk about their roadmap again, their aim was to provide a preliminary guideline for mind emulation and uh, defining key technologies that would need to be developed or refined uh, and also identifying problems or uncertainties. So they've done this really well in their paper. Um, and before we go any deeper into whole brain emulation, um, we want to talk about the importance of uh, separating emulation versus simulation. So I've got a couple different examples because even looking this up myself, um, you know, a little bit difficult to understand, but uh, let me try to break it down clearly. So emulation is mimicking the internal functions of a program, whereas simulation models the outward results of a program. Um, so to even break that down even further, emulating as having every relevant feature as your original so closely that it can even be used as a substitute or a clone to say, whereas simulating is appearing or reacting identically, but to its core, it is not the same and it doesn't have the same internal functions. So it's really best for analysis and study, whereas emulation can be a complete replica. So now that we've got um, the basics uh, discussed already, let's get into how brain emulation would really work. And so something that we've gathered from this is that there are three key assumptions when you're um, trying to upload the brain. So first of all, it's the physicality of it, which assumes that everything about the mind can be found in the brain. 
Uh, next is the scannability of it, which means that we understand the brain well enough and we possess the technology to make a complete mind copy. And then the last important part is the computability. So that's that we have computer software um, that is powerful enough to make sense of the mind and we have an efficient way of storing it basically. Um, so I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. So for the physicality of the um, portion of this, um, some people believe that the mind is actually separate from the brain. So the brain is that physical mash of roughly 86 billion neurons inside your head. Um, and it consists of neocortex for one, which is pretty important and holds the memories, plans, your thoughts, your imagination. Um, and it also holds your hopes and your dreams. And then there's the precuneus, um, and this is assumed to have the greatest influence on your consciousness, although um, there are a lot of other parts of your brain that influence your, um, you know, who you are and your consciousness, you could say. Uh, so it doesn't exactly work alone. So the mind is pretty ambiguous, and uh, this is one important aspect that uh, I guess we would need to understand before we could really go ahead and call mind uploading what it is because it has to take your consciousness with it. Yeah, that's that's um, actually an interesting an interesting concept because you have your active mind and that's really what you think about when you think about your brain, right? You think about your active mind, but what a lot of people um tend to forget is that, you know, you have your your subconscious which at the end of the day actually makes 90% of your decisions for you before you even know that those decisions are made. You know, when I put my mic pod up and and turn the volume up and spoke just now, um to, to say something here that, that, you know, that decision was made for me beforehand by my subconscious. So, so if you think about it that way, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because like, I'd imagine at least that it would be a lot harder to, to get the subconscious parts of the mind working properly than it would be to get the active parts of the mind working properly, just because of how little we know about it. Um, as of now, compared to the parts of our parts of our mind that that are actively working all the time um you know for our for our outward thought processes and our you know like you said our memories and our imagination and and our language and all of that exactly uh you explained that really well you know i mean like I went to explain, there's definitely the physical aspects of the brain, but you get uh, even smaller and smaller. I mean, we're talking about hormones and chemicals uh, that affect uh, the way you do things and the way that you think about things. So being able to copy that and, you know, how it works, how it moves, everything about it exactly into a computer process, you know, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> Um, and then moving on to scannability, um, once again, you know, we have to make sure that uh, we understand the brain well enough and we are able to copy this. Uh, so like I said before, the brain is so complex, consisting of 86 billion neurons. Um, and currently scientists are attempting to just map out insect brains, tiny, tiny insect brains. So to put it into scale, an ant or a fruit fly has about 250,000 neurons. A house mouse has roughly 71 million neurons and humans, once again, 86 billion neurons. So that's a lot more than what we're currently have the capability uh, what we currently have the capability to do. You know, uh, what's actually lastly, what's actually interesting is that um, Wikipedia, I was looking into this, has a list of animals 
uh, based on the number of neurons in their brains. And actually, there are there are I mean, mind you, only four, but there are animals that have more neurons than humans. So that kind of raises the question of whether or not like neurons are directly tied to um, intelligence and your ability to uh, to, you know, um, work with logic and, and complex thought and stuff. Because, for example, the animal with the highest number of neurons is is a killer whale. Which, like, you know, it's it's a very intelligent an- animal. I mean, actually, all of the all of the animals with the highest number of neurons, the top five, you have humans, and then you have um, a type of dolphin, and then actually four types of dolphins because killer whales are also a type of dolphin. So <laughs> I just found that really interesting. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, that is interesting. And I think that kind of points back both again to the physicality and the scannability of it, because I mean, if like if we if there are animals that have more neurons, but say, uh, you know, we might not call them as intelligent as humans, then that definitely goes back to the consciousness and the mind being split from the brain. Like, you know, where what exactly are we dealing with here to get a successful mind upload? Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Um, and then lastly, moving on to computability, um, it really depends on uh, the chosen level of simulation that we're trying to emulate here. But because obviously we're going for emulation, we um, I looked up the most powerful complex model that would be needed um, in order for mind uploading to be a success, let's say. Um, so when um, focusing on computability, it's really focused on processing power, that's your CPU, and memory. So to emulate the behavior of single molecules in a brain, which would be the most, um, it would be the most identical version to your brain to upload. So this is what we're going after here. Um, To emulate the behavior of single molecules in a brain, we need a CPU that can handle 10 tredecillion flops, or that's uh, 10 to the power of 43, massive number, or three exaflops. What is a um, what is a flop? So a flops. I actually had to search this up. Obviously, when I was looking this up. So uh, bear with me with this definition. But uh, flops stands for floating point operations per second, um, and uh, they're used as a measure of how fast a processor is, or how many operations they can do on floating point numbers every second. Um, and so to break down floating point numbers, uh, they're just uh, numbers that have a decimal place in them somewhere, as opposed to an integer, which is just a round number of its own. Um, So a more powerful processor can actually do more operations more quickly uh, when they have higher flops. So um, in this case, when I'm talking about 10 tredecillion flops or three exaflops, um, that's the number of operations it can do per second is 10 tredecillion. That's how many flops we need to get this. That's a lot of flops. Flip flop. <laughs> and that was horrible. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, just keep going. <laughs> um, and so it's also been estimated that a full brain map um, covering every single little crevice of your brain will occupy just less than 20,000 terabytes. Uh, that, that, that's a lot of that's a lot of bytes, you know, we're dealing with a lot of bytes and flops here. And so for comparison, I wanted to look up the world's most powerful supercomputer that we have to date. And uh, there is one out there. It's named Fugaku. 
and it is three times more powerful than any other supercomputer existing today. So it has 537 petaflops uh, or 537 quadrillion flops. So that's just half of one exaflop. And we're trying to get to three exaflops here. When were computers and invented? Give give it another give it another roughly eighty years, and maybe we'll get there. <laughs> eighty years is a good number for me because if I can still like think, if whole brain emulation is at least just created a base model in our life, do you think we can live? forever because i mean that is that is something that uh whole brain emulation could be used for but um i mean before we get into this ethical discussion i also just want to say that the most powerful supercomputer also has just over 5000 terabytes so we are already over a quarter of the way to our goal here and um bringing back the discussion of how far away it is i think we're you know, on the breach of making this possible, at least, hopefully, fingers crossed, within our lifetime. Um, do you think we could see this anytime soon, Alessio? Or, I mean, do you think we're going to be hella dead by the time we see this? Uh, I, I definitely think we'll see um, in to some degree, because there, there are different layers. I, I think that we will see some degree of brain emulation or uh, brain simulation. Um do you think it will be open to consumers as well? Or do you think obviously once it's established, it's like a, a very special feature? That's It's hard to say. I, I honestly, as as far as I'm aware, I think that it's it's possible, but I think it would be very, very expensive. You know, I think if you were trying to to emulate yourself, you'd be running somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And and who knows, you know, what companies would do with uh, with that technology if they had it. So so I, I think as far as consumer brain emulation, we're much farther off from that than we are from just, you know, uh, having it as, as something that scientists do for studies and such. Um, on the theme of this roadmap that you talked about earlier, um, there are a couple of things to understand first, I think, that are important. And... Um, it's 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 basically the idea of functional knowledge versus detail knowledge, um, and I'll explain what those mean when it comes to understanding and being and using that understanding to uh, map a brain, um, so that we can at least get that part done. So there's no real need for scientists working on whole brain emulation to understand exactly how a brain works at its core levels. Uh, basically what they need to know is the basic details of how it's structured. So if you look at it this way, instead of asking themselves, why does a specific part of the brain, for example, um, the frontal lobe or a set of, a set of neurons that, that, that tends to do a certain thing. Um, why does that part function the way it does? They can ask themselves, what state does it need to be in? How is it constructed? Um, for it to be able to function the way it does. So they don't need to know the why, they just need to know the um, the how and the where. So that's called functional knowledge. The detail knowledge um, is kind of the backbone of um, um, figuring, it, figuring out how to scan a brain. Um, 
for the purposes of whole brain emulation. So this technical support, this roadmap from the University of Oxford says something as simple as, and this is dumbing it down to an incredible degree, but something as simple as a parts list could be hugely useful, right? So more useful than understanding exactly why each part of the brain works the way it does. They want to know how is this structured? Um, which parts go where? And then we can figure out the rest as we go along, basically. Because if they have that structure, if they have a brain mapped out to uh, an accurate degree, um, it should just work without them having to know how, right? So, so with the most complex model that I looked up to try to get a whole brain emulation, uh, to make whole brain emulation possible... That required knowing and emulating the behavior of every single molecule in the brain. But detailed knowledge is basically saying we don't need to have control over every single molecule. Well, there, there are actually, there are actually different, um, different levels of simulation. And we'll talk about that in a sec. But, but first, I want to kind of go up because, and, and you'll understand why I'm doing this. Um, but like you said before, uh, the whole brain emulation, you have your three main capabilities that are required to, to pull it off, right? You have, uh, scanning, you have, um, being able to interpret the information and build a software model out of it. And you have to have the hardware to simulate the model, right? So there are actually sub boxes to tick before all of these things can come together. And I'm going to go through a few of the key milestones that we're looking at when it comes to getting a true brain emulation. And you'll see where we come to the point of um, whether we're talking about molecules or we're talking about a larger, more ambiguous model. So <clears throat> ground truth models um, is basically your first step. And basically a ground truth in machine learning is the reality that you want your model to predict or to accomplish, right? So it basically means checking the results of machine learning for accuracy against the real world. Uh, for example, a much simpler AI, like an AI that has to do with those captures that you complete, you know, uh, click on all the tiles with a car or click on all the tiles with the traffic light. That'll be your ground truth with which to train the AI. So that's where the AI gets its idea of what's right and what's wrong and where it wants to go. So in this case, you can assume that it might mean a better understanding of how the brain actually functions before we can get uh, straight into it. Or I guess more accurately in this case, if we go off of the idea of detail knowledge versus functional knowledge, um, just an idea of how the brain is built uh, to, to a better degree. So this is where we talk about determining the level of simulation, which means determining how accurate to life we want our, our simulated brain to be because you simulate first, right? Before you can emulate. Uh, so how much detail do we want to take into account? Do we want to simulate a neural network with similar connections to what we see in a brain, which we're already, you know, doing at a very rudimentary level compared to what we'd need to actually simulate a fully functional brain. But um, if you think about those, the AI episode, when we talked about your neural networks and machine learning, it, it's kind of similar to that. Do we want to do something like that? Do we go with large areas? Kind of like when you look up a brain map and it shows each lobe and you assign functions to those areas, or do you go as far as 
quantum interactions between molecules or to like a less intense degree, proteins, genes, um, chemicals within the brain and such, right? So it's kind of the idea of of deciding how deep we want to go. And obviously we're going to have to go, um, we're going to have to brush with broader strokes at the beginning before we can get to the, um, the really complex and, and really minute stuff as far as like, you know, simulating down to the atom, right? So that's where that's at. Um, so after that, um, you have something like full cell simulation, which, uh, you know, is, is a step below in terms of intensity, the, the idea of simulating whole molecules. Um, but full cell simulation, while not strict, strictly necessary, um, would be important for like large scale simulations. Um, and then you have body simulation, uh, which is another one of the key milestones, um, and that's pretty self-explanatory, uh, simulating how it would, uh, interact. This emulated brain would interact with a body. Um, and then you have the question of whether or not we need hardware that's specific to this use, right? Um, so you could throw a simulation up on a supercomputer, but what if, um, it would be more beneficial to make hardware specifically, make a new supercomputer specifically for this that's tailored to that. So that's obviously a question that they're asking. Um, and then down to organism simulation. So you can, or you can simulate a whole organism, uh, in terms of neural control, body state, how it interacts with its environment. Um, which isn't true emulation um, as it's, it's more of a simulation because an emulation has to be based basically uh, directly printed out of a already existing brain. Right. But it's nonetheless an important step. So, um, and then you have your final um, kind of like big milestone, I guess, which would be a complete inventory, which, which, how they explain it is um, something that could be dumbed down to a parts list, right? Every part of the brain from the larger nervous system to the cells, synapses, and then you'd be able to fully emulate a brain. How are you feeling about this so far? It's a lot of information. Uh, that's a lot of information. And also, as you're explaining this, it's, it's just making me think like, you know, obviously there's a lot of testing and experimenting with this. And if this is something that we eventually want to use on humans, who who's going to step up to to volunteer their brain or their neural systems? Obviously, they're both to do this. Like this is terrifying. If it goes wrong, it what what could happen? Nobody knows. This is like, yeah. As you're breaking down this information to me, it just sounds like um, a lot could go wrong before it goes right. Yeah, well, I, I I don't think as far as things going wrong with the the simulated brain, yeah. But for the person who's actually doing it, I guess then it becomes an ethics question because you're wondering, like, you know, if I'm if I'm offering my brain up to be scanned, like, am am I essentially, for uh, lack of a more graceful way of saying it, am I shafting this being that's me that I'm bringing into existence and could just like, you know, die or something within this simulation or, or have something horribly wrong with it? Um, there's lots of stuff to talk about there. But, but once we're capable of that full emulation after we've gone through the simulation stuff, 
Um, then it's basically just a list, right? Um, so you do a partial emulation, emulation, uh, which means like something like a, a small neural system, like the retina of someone's eye. After that, you can work your way up um, from a fixed, you can work your way up to like a fixed nervous system organism uh, and then an invertebrate. Uh, so like a bug and then a small mammal, say a mouse and then a large mammal, say a dog and then a human. Um, and that's where the ethics come in, right? So that that's, I'm by no means trying to get super in depth about this because there is no way in hell I could ever learn enough about this to give you a full explanation of exactly all of the moving parts and, and what's going on. But this is an and overview. And that's just the thing. We don't even know like the full weight of this. And we don't know exactly how everything would go down. We know how things have to or how things should be done. Like you just laid out in an order of steps. But I mean, moving forward, this is like um, this is like an earth shifting idea. And there's not a whole lot of, you know, like life changing ideas that um, we see even possible, let alone in our lifetime. Um, but this is one of them right here. This is something that would change the world as we know it. Um, and, you know, it could very well happen within the next century, possibly, you know, two centuries. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> like I, like we were kind of teasing earlier in our chat, um, the ethics are, are, are really interesting. Um, and, and I think for me, at least the biggest ethical concern, um, and stop me if you disagree. Um, for me, the biggest ethical concern is um, the idea that you are creating a being that's destined to um, kind of live in servitude and it, taking aside the fact that it's you and that I genuinely do believe it's really messed up to want to enslave yourself, much less anyone else, of course. But um, just the idea of... Um, of having this being that's been created out of, you know, thin air has all of your memories, has all your hopes and dreams and your emotions and it can't go anywhere. Uh, you know, maybe the simulation allows it to, but it, it's, it's in a simulation, you know? Um, so that's kind what? of scary to me in my opinion. And that's why, okay. So in your opinion, it, it definitely sounds like, um, you're stuck to some kind of computer, but I want to talk about something that um, the professor of philosophy at a UConn, um, his name is Mitch Green, and he actually described one hypothetical endgame for whole brain emulation. So, you know, you enter a booth, scan and upload your mind to a server, no problem, it's in the air, and you're downloading it into a robot body. And then now without going anywhere at all, you spend an afternoon wine tasting in Napa and skiing in Austria or anywhere else in the world. So say that you could, you know, upload your mind to some kind of like wireless or movable body. So that's literally you in another body now, most likely a robot body, but um, you wouldn't be stuck to one place. So what would you think about, you know, that if say, you know, that like your uploaded version of yourself is able to basically just do other human things? I, I guess I just can't wrap my head around it. And I'll tell you why, because when you upload your brain into this machine that then sends it via the internet to a robot, right? 
do you fall asleep and then wake up in this robot body? Because how in the hell does that work? Do you experience everything that that robot body experiences with your mind in it? Um, as a, as you know, thought as memories, do you experience those only as memories once it's uploaded back into your body? How can you remove, because you, you can't, you can't remove the consciousness from your body and transfer it, right? Once you upload your mind into, uh, say this robot, there's going to be two of you now, uh, which one of you are you, right? You'd assume that you're the original, but if so, how do you experience these experiences that you've gone through while in this robot body, while your, your double is in this robot body, right? Because the way I see it, um, yeah, maybe they could, uh, say you're done. You want to go home or your double wants to go home, your robot twin. Um, and you shut it off. And the data that of the data that contains the memories of what you experienced while you were wine tasting in Napa and skiing in Austria, right? It's sent back to the machine that you're connected to your real self is connected to. And then that is downloaded into your brain. Okay. So now I've just had those experiences, but I'll only ever have them as memories and I'll never have them in the moment. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's just super, super weird to me. I, I see. Yeah. I see exactly what you're saying. And, um, I think, I guess if I wanted to try to play the devil's advocate to you here, then um, it, that's really just one of those things that we'd have to come to terms with. You know, whole brain emulation is a thing. You can upload your freaking consciousness to another, to a supercomputer or to another, you know, wireless mobile robot. Um, and so I think you would probably just have to come to terms with the fact that, you know, you had those memories, but that wasn't actually you in that moment experiencing those things. So say, you know, you could go do like a whole crazy workout or a five hour hike. Um, but in reality, you'd get back to your body and you haven't lost a single calorie. Um, so uh, hearing your concerns, uh, I feel like it would just be this shift, this mental realization. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. You know, I have a perfect memory of me doing these things, but I can never say that I've been to Italy before. Yeah, and 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 then also, I kind of want to ask you, like, if you, because we were talking about uh, living forever, right, and uploading your mind into the cloud and and living on in this computer simulation for the rest of your life. That's not you, you know. That's that's a double of you. Your consciousness, the consciousness that you're living through, will still die. It'll be as if. It'll be it it to me at least. I could be totally wrong, but to me the way I see it is um imagine a clone, right? A physical clone. Imagine um you know how they've like cloned sheep and stuff like that. You're that sheep, right? You're that sheep. Uh, we're we're going to shift it to humans actually. You're a human, right? You are 90 years old. Someone takes a bit of your DNA and clones you, right? And you are born but it's not you, right? It's a clone of you. And when you die, when that 90 year old man dies, um, you're gone. Your consciousness is gone. It's extinguished, right? This other being that happens to have the exact same brain as you is now living on. You don't experience those, those, you know, experiences personally. So, so that's the issue I have with it. I feel like it might be misunderstood by a lot of people or I'm misunderstanding it grossly, but, but I just don't see how, um, it would work for, for living forever. Uh, I mean, if, if a neuroscientist listens to this and wants to school my ass, 
please do because I want to like be super excited about this and I am because it's really cool technology but I just I can't wrap my head around the fact that the two consciousnesses would still be separate from each other experiencing life differently just with the same mental processes and the same subconscious and all of that I, I see where you're coming from, um, and I think I, I would be the opposite. I mean, I'm still excited, although that is, like, I made a clone of myself. They're going to go on and live forever, but me, me, I'm actually human in the flesh. You know, my organs grow old, and they die, and they stop working. So I understand that that wouldn't be me continuing on, but, like, it's also still me by definition, like that's my identity going and moving on forward. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, although I wouldn't be keeping those memories anymore because like I'm dead, um, I would still be in like living on this planet and living a human life. So that's not like me, me, like me speaking right now. (laughs) This is so funny talking about this, but um, (laughs) it is still, you know, like the identity of me and the idea of me living on for, you know, however long it would need to live on for. And so, I mean, like that's, that would be enough for me. And so this is definitely something that um, I would take up. Um, But going back to the very beginning of this ethics conversation, talking about what our biggest fear would be. um, I mean, mine would honestly be the privacy of information. Like we're dealing now in a digital age with um, like just your social media accounts can like separate everybody in the world into six psychological groups. Um, So the way that, you know, I guess, Uh, People like Cambridge Analytica are already dissecting people down to every single action and personality trait that you have. Um, That freaks me out. But imagine if you completely replicated yourself onto a digital server and say, you know, whatever company that is offering that service to you keeps a version of it in case you ever come back again and want to use your consciousness. Like they have your consciousness, your exact self for copy on their servers, on their hard drive somewhere. And um, I just don't trust that anybody in the world could keep <laughs> my brain private or to myself. Um, so that's that that's my biggest thing. Yeah, dude, I, I totally feel that. And I agree. Um, but we are running out of time. Uh, this is getting pretty long. So uh, I think we're going to have a good discussion here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy with with what we've talked about. And I think, you know, it gives everybody a lot to a lot to think about. So um That's all we've got for today. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts, but be sure to check out our website at didn'tknowpodcast.com. We are sorry if we left you with more questions than answers today. It seemed to be the nature of this podcast, but please tune in for the next one. I'm Brad Ball. I'm Alessio Danini. We hope you learned something. (laughs) 